Welcome to BC The Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, please be sure to follow us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. If you're enjoying Because the Beatles, please feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. You can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. Well, hello again. Hello again. We got back. We said we're going to get back, and we got back. Yes, we kept our word. We did indeed get back in through Paul got back fashion. As always, he continues to inspire. He is truly our beacon. He's like our St. Paul of lost episodes where we he tells us what to do and we do it it's perfect there we go exactly well i did something very non-paul like i talked last episode about seeing paul and you know paul's been very looming large in my life at the moment but uh i don't know i got this wild hair and i saw that nowhere boy is streaming on this app called canopy did we talk about canopy i don't think so no i was talking something about canopy but it's so if you guys have library cards or library access you can get access to this like amazing streaming service called Canopy and it's got movies, documentaries, TV shows, but it's all through your library. So it's all basically free. Wow. Yeah. And right now, or at least it was a couple weeks ago when I watched it, Nowhere Boy was streaming. And I remember seeing it when it came out and I didn't love it. Did you see it when it came out? Yeah. And I felt kind of the same way. I didn't love it. The way it sort of portrays Julia Lennon as being so friggin' creepy, where she's yeah. like this MILF that's like hot to trot with all of John's friends. Mm-hmm. And there's like a slight like incestuary, like yep. vein. Yeah, I just I didn't love it. I rewatched it. And I don't know, like I, okay, I think in a lot of ways, it's more even handed than a lot of biopics of John that sort of like deify him. Obviously, like everything made about John ever pretty much deifies him in some way. Or they go Mm -hmm. the other spectrum and he's a monster. I think Nowhere Boy is pretty even-handed. I like that it has a lot of ancillary characters, like his cousins and his aunts and like what his life is probably like in Liverpool. But yeah, I just, Julia, the fucking character is just so off the walls. Like she's so hyper-sexualized for his mom, which Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I have a hard time believing that was who she really was. Yeah, there's a fine line between free spirit and unconventional and potentially wants to have sex with your son. Like there's difference. There's a line there. <laughs> there's a slight difference there, just a tiny, yeah. tiny little bit. Yeah, and and I think also the character of Mimi is, I think that's actually a better Mimi that's in Nowhere Boy. And I think the relationship between Mimi and John is better in Nowhere Boy than in a lot of shows. Because, you know, usually it's like, oh, Mimi, she's a wet blanket. She's like trying to harsh my mellow and she doesn't want me to play guitar. She says I'll never make a living or whatever. But this Mimi is a lot more, she gets a lot of wiggle room in that aspect where you see her like buying John a guitar and, you know, actually supporting him a little bit and going to his performances and supporting him as he grows up. And you see her probably more as she was, which was... A mother to him yeah and then julie is just like this like fuck up little rogue over here who's like you know slutting around with 15 year olds mm. so yeah my opinion about nowhere boy has really not changed uh that's okay but something that has come to light this week i don't know if it's new or whatever but shout out to my friend jen who turned me on to it so there's a tool online you can kind of use to figure out if you're a beatles song and you do this via song battles 
So it presents you with two options, two song options, and you can choose one or the other. You can pick tie. I think you can skip it. You can choose which albums you want to pull the songs from. Um, like when you click onto the website and we will drop the website address in our show description so you can do it for yourself, but you can check, remove the George Martin film score to Yellow Submarine. You can remove like cover songs, anthology demos, and you can pick which Beatles albums you want to choose your song battles from. So it's a really intensive process. I'm 358 battles in and 35% through and I've learned a lot. (laughs) I must say about my Beatle preferences. I mean, I always knew I skewed earlier, but I just, I never realized until my like hand was held to the fire, like how many songs I would pick over I'm the Walrus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew. I was like, oh, okay. So I like that one more than I'm the Walrus. Hmm, interesting. This is an interesting thing. I'm, I'm looking at it right now and it's hard. It's hard to decide sometimes even between two. It's hard, not just with songs you like, but songs you hate. It's like, okay, which Mm -hmm. one of these fucking songs do I hate the least? If you present me with Don't Pass Me By and Octopus's Garden, I don't know. (laughs) It's (laughs) (laughs) like, let me just randomly pick one of these. That's a tough thing. And there is no button here that says exclude the Ringo song. So unfortunately, you have to go through it. Yeah, that would be a good one. I mean, I would, yeah. Remove song duplicates. There's a button here for that. I don't know. I've gotten a lot of duplicates, but I think that's probably the algorithm trying to figure out exactly like your ranking of these songs. I'm not sure what the end result is. So I don't know if you get presented with your top 10 or whatever, or just like your one shining, gleaming favorite Beatles song. But I'm interested to see if it matches up with like what I feel is my favorite Beatles song, which is Andrew Burke and Sing. So we'll see. Oh my God, that's the one that's on my screen right now. I have to choose between Any Your Bird Can Sing and Wait. I mean, I know what I pick, but that's a hard one because Wait's a great song too. I find this one very hard. Like I'm just not choosing right now. I'm only 1% done. So a long time to go. <laughs> I got presented one time with Bad Boy versus Matchbox. And I was like, oh, fuck. The devil mm. himself served me yeah. this because I love both of those tracks so much from Past Masters Volume 1. Which way did you end up going? I went bad boy. It's just ah, just a little bit more than Matchbox. Mm. And yes, yes, Matchbox is a Ringo song, and I fucking love it. I love. Wow. I mean, I love the original. I love the Carl Perkins original. I love all of it. We've got revelations here today for you. We are serving them up hot. <laughs> hot takes, hot takes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so check out this tool and let us know what you get, uh, how you like it, because it's it's really hard. I'm very curious. Does your favorite song, according to this tool, actually match up to what you think it's going to be or even close? Yeah, 100%. We'll post our results, too, when we finally complete this. I'm 362 battles now because I've done a couple as we've been talking. Um, It's 36%. So that's got to mean there's like almost a thousand battles, right? Yeah. Got to be over a thousand. I guess it's good that we excluded duplicates or whatever. It's probably puts that it's so much more. Well, you were saying that you would probably exclude covers. I probably would. I just know that in the quest to find favorite songs or top songs, it's not going to be, you know, please, Mr. Postman. It's just not going to be anywhere near there. So maybe we can just like toss those now. But like, what about definitive covers? Like a lot of people would say like Twist and Shout is like the definitive cover of the Beatles. And I, I don't know, Twist and Shout might end up in like my top 25 or something. Okay. That's an argument definitely to not exclude those. Know yourself. (laughs) Know yourself for your Beatles taste. That's the moral <laughs> of the story here. Yes. 
Just side note, in case you hear it, my dog is having a dream and she's barking in her <gasps> dream. <gasps> there she is, Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> Aww. I knew she'd make an appearance in some way. I'm so glad. My cat, Epi, he was here and then he left. I think he just got annoyed because he probably wants to sleep in silence. I thought maybe he'd do some purring into the mic. He might come back. We'll see. The episode is young. It is. And speaking of young, Paul's tour is actually <laughs> still quite young. <laughs> Love that segue for us. I, I know. It's perfect. <laughs> that was great. It's that was good. <laughs> Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> and while we went over some of Allison's initial experiences in the first week or so of Paul's tour, he's still got to visit the East Coast and we're going to see a little more. So we were trying to decide where to go and when to do it. Where should we go? Yeah, I'm really considering flying out to some of the East Coast shows. And you're kind of considering a few different ones. So you've got your eye sort of on Syracuse, right? I'm interested in the Syracuse show because it really is out of the way compared to some of these major hotspots he's hitting. And I'm wondering if it's maybe quite a bit smaller, more intimate. I can't remember if I mentioned in our um, our Got Back episode, but... The LA show at SoFi was, I think, 70 to 100,000 cap. Whereas I saw him in Oakland, Oakland Arena, which is 19,000. And honestly, that makes all the difference for sure. So I would say if you could see Paul on the tour, smaller the better, especially where arenas are concerned. We saw him at, in Nassau, right? And that, that didn't feel terribly big to me. No, that was pretty small. That was nice and intimate. I saw him once yeah. at in State College, where Penn State is, <gasps> at like the Penn State basketball arena. So it was like a college basketball arena. So it was small. It was cool. That is really small. I can't believe he played that. That's so cool. It was great. So yeah, as we're considering it, uh, let us know if you guys are going to shows on the East Coast, what, what looks good to you. We're definitely looking at all the ticket sites. We'll see what we come up with. I'm, I'm excited to begin the adventure anew for more Paul shows. It's never been just going online, buying tickets and being set. It's always been a thing. Part of the fun. Well, guys, you know, since we're talking about Paul live, uh, as we mentioned in our last episode, we are talking about some of like Paul's and the Beatles, very significant moments in their live careers. And one thing that we both thought of right away was when Paul played in Moscow and St. Petersburg in 2003 and 2004. And if you guys have seen the documentary, there's a David Frost film that came out about it. I believe it's just called Paul in Red Square. You can find it on YouTube. We'll drop a link in our show notes. And we just decided to look back on it. Yeah, considering some of the, the horrible stuff that's going on right now with Russia and the Ukraine and uh, Vladimir Putin, it's it's a very interesting look back. Yeah, I Putin, this whole thing has really inspired some very complicated Putin thoughts, because obviously now we know he's a monster. Back then, not so much. It was pretty wild to see Putin in this Paul documentary after so many years since having seen it for the first time and everything that's happened since then, obviously. Yeah, not just Putin, but, you know, Putin and Heather. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> I posted on my Instagram story when I started to watch the documentary and they show like right at the top of the show, there's a shot of Paul walking between Putin and Heather, which I'm going to guess is going to be what we're going to post <laughs> on our yeah. socials when we post this episode. So you've mm-hmm. probably seen it already. It's like, Paul, you are, between, I don't even know what to say to you. You are in the middle of something that you cannot handle right now. <laughs> I don't know what's worse for you. 
<laughs> like, I don't know what's going on with Paul and like the aughts, because in our last season, we did a recap of the um, the 9-11 video or film yeah. that he did, the documentary about the concert for New York City. And I thought that was the worst Paul moment when he was um, having a jovial conversation with Bill Clinton about how awesome Harvey Weinstein is like, to me in the in the pantheon of things that don't age well. That was that was pretty rough. I think that Paul having a friendly walk with Putin and Heather Mills might be one tick above that one. I, yes, I have so many thoughts. I have had, I mean, I've been thinking all week as uh, we've been working on this episode about just how fucking chaotic the odds were for Paul McCartney. I think he hit it on the head when he named his 2005 album Chaos and Creation because mm. it was a fucking mess up until then, <laughs> pretty much. I yep. think things sort of started to smooth out towards the end of the odds, but wow. Yeah, I would consider that entire decade, at least until like Memory Almost Full came out as the Linda grieving years and yeah. a lot of fucked up stuff happened. Yeah, that was definitely his, like, sort of, like, hot girl summer, gonna just go crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Well, before we get too deep into Putin uh, gate, as we'll call it, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about Russia and communism and the backstory about leading up to Paul going to Moscow in 2003. So you guys probably have heard a lot about the Iron Curtain and the Soviet Union and the bloc and how you could not really access rock and roll music in Russia until really the early nineties. And that's because, you know, around the time of the cold war, the communist Soviet union, which is the USSR in song by Paul McCartney. Mm -hmm. That's when they were becoming really wary of these Western influences in pop culture, anything that might encourage free thinking and its citizens, which is the enemy of communism. So not only was it really hard to get rock and roll records, it was super duper expensive. One LP of any kind on the black market could cost a half a month's wages, which back then, I mean, if you're living in communist society too, those are precious, precious money. You're already waiting on the bread line. Yeah, exactly. That makes it virtually non-existent for you to have music. But one thing I loved in researching this that I didn't know about, I never heard about were things called bone records. So people would smuggle records in and usually it was actors or politicians even you know people that work for different party lines or just people traveling they would sneak in records from england or wherever they were traveling from and so they'd be distributed on the black market sold very expensively but then people would get a hold of them and make copies and what they used to make copies were old vinyl x-rays and hmm. i never thought about this but those x-rays they took them and they used just a disc cutter to make copies of these records And of course, they were like flimsier. They weren't like 180 gram, 140 gram vinyl, which we're used to today. But, you know, if you consider in the 60s, fucking records came on the back of a cereal box. Like I've got a Dave Clark (laughs) 5 record that was in a cereal box in the 60s. It's like you can really kind of make a record on anything. That's crazy. Yeah. And so they called them bone records, not only because they were made from x-rays, but you could actually like see broken bones on the records. Like you could... If you look them up online, there's like skeletal hands and spooky shit. Oh, like that. wow. That's cool. That's <laughs> yeah, really cool. So they did that a lot through the 50s. They were banned, quote unquote, in 1958. And then the dawn of the 60s, you sort of saw things like loosening up a little bit. Like there were more like reel to reel tape recorders and 
some lighter restrictions, but really it was not encouraged to buy records or distribute records. Obviously, the 60s, here come the Beatles, the biggest fucking band in the world. And Russia did not have a way to really get their records. Shockingly, they were like like the records before them smuggled in, but the risks were super duper high. If you were caught smuggling them in, if you were like a, like I said, like a politician or anybody coming in from another country, you could be banned from traveling abroad. You could be arrested. If you were caught buying the black market records, the KGB would send a letter to your place of work and kind of ruin your life. Oh my God. Students could be expelled. And the worst part is they would also take away your record. <laughs> There's no way to freaking win. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't go to school. You had nothing to do and you can't even stay home all day and listen to your record. And you're like, I don't even have my record to show for it. So this is all lose, bad. Lose. This is all bad. Yeah, exactly. And then if you're if you had like a relative somewhere else, they couldn't even send you a record in the mail because the KGB would smash it. <laughs> it's it was just so unduly hard. I feel bad for these people. But you know, towards the end of the sixties, as the reel to reel and the tape recorders became more widely available, people started, you know, making cassette tapes, which were easier to distribute, obviously. And they were like a little bit cheaper to, to buy on the black market also. But I thought this was very funny because you've heard the phrase, if you're a cop, you have to tell me you're a cop. Well, not in Soviet Russia. <laughs> <laughs> the way that they could tell, like people selling these black market cassette tapes could tell if uh, they were selling to a cop is they would ask them rock trivia. Which if you're like me, I get really nervous when people ask me trivia questions. So I feel like I'd fail and they think I was a cop. But the question is really, were the Beatles actually banned? They technically weren't. People say all the time, like, you know, rock and roll is banned. Like, there's a lot of documentaries out there talking about, you know, the Beatles being a rebellious force and they were banned because they preached freedom and these idealistic Western ideas to young people. But they weren't actually technically banned. They were very, very discouraged in the country. The press would mock them. They would troll them on the news if they mentioned them at all. It was still very impossible to find their records, although sometimes their songs could come through a Radio Luxembourg, which I'm sure you all have heard of, which, you know, was basically just a huge radio system coming out of Germany. You could hear it in England. Uh, you could hear it into Russia. And finally, the press started to ignore them and just really didn't pay them any mind. They sort of faded. So there were also state-sanctioned Beatles bootlegs under the publisher Melodica, which was Russia's sort of house label, if you will. The song Girl appeared on a folk disc in 67, but there were no songwriting credits, so you couldn't really tell who it was. And the first full-length LP, the first full-length Beatles LP, to be officially released in Russia was A Hard Day's Night, but that wasn't until 1986. So that's pretty wild that it was so long before anybody was able to officially buy a Beatles LP. So as you read about the Beatles in Russia, and also in this Paul Run Square doc that we're going to talk about in a second, there's this big theme where it's like the Beatles meant so much to the Russian people, to Russian fans, much more than they meant to the British fans, the American fans, because of just what they represented, which was the escape from the communist government and the depressing social atmosphere, obviously living in communism. It's like there's nothing that's really self-expressive or creative or any of that. It's all state sanctioned and controlled by the state. So the Beatles were a way to sort of escape that, even if it was for just a few minutes in a song <laughs> on a bootleg record. Something that has sort of persisted in Beatles lore was that the Beatles played a gig in Moscow in 1968, which obviously didn't happen. There's no fucking way. 
But there's been a longstanding rumor that that's what inspired Paul to write back in the USSR. I love a conspiracy theory. I do too. I love a conspiracy theory. So just a sidebar, what actually inspired Paul to write back in the USSR was being in Rishikesh with Mike Love of the Beach Boys. And he sort of wrote it in reaction to California Girls, where if you play them back to back, you can hear the similarities. And Paul mm-hmm. would do that a lot, you know, obviously write things that were inspired by other other writers. Like he did that with Love and Spoonful, which I love to talk about because I love Love and Spoonful. He wrote Good Day Sunshine in reaction to Daydream and that kind of thing. So that's where Back in the USSR came from. It actually really had nothing to do with Russia. No matter what Paul says, <laughs> what anybody else said, it really didn't have anything to do with Russia. Do you think Paul made up the rumor? Do you think so? Maybe. We can start that rumor. We can start the rumor that Paul started the rumor. 100% true that Paul started the rumor. Yeah, he did. He put it out there. He's like, this is going to be great. I mean, we talked at our very first episode about what a marketing genius Paul is. So up through the 80s, uh, there came something called perestroika, and that was a movement to reform the Communist Party, economically, socially, etc. Starting in the 80s, championed by Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the Russian president at the time, and he was really like, let's just open Russia up. Let's get some outside influences in here. This is a drag, like, fuck it. And the word perestroika literally means reconstruction. So it was taking everything down to brass tacks, like everywhere in the government. The economy, he wanted to restructure everything about how like the Russian financial situation was set up, clear through like actually getting entertainment and culture and color, blah, all that, bringing it into the uh, Soviet Union. And it lasted from 1985 to 1991. 91 is when the Soviet Union fell apart and uh, Gorbachev resigned. So that's kind of what ended that. Uh, Boris Yeltsin then became president. And um, Perestroika is actually credited as being what brought down the Eastern Bloc and ended the Cold War, finally. Why do we care Mm. about this? Well, (laughs) because Paul released an album in reaction to it. That's why we give a shit. Generally speaking in life, that's why I give a shit about anything. Exactly. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is boring history stuff, but but it involves Paul. So let's uh, let's go there. (laughs) Um, So you guys, and I truthfully kind of forgot about this album. I'm going to try to say this correctly. Shnova B R. Yes, I did nice. Google Translate that. Thank you. I grew up calling it the Choba B CCCP album because I grew up in Ohio. Choba B. <laughs> Choba B, yeah. He released this album in 1988, and it was Paul's first, I believe, covers album. And he sort of made it after Press to Play bombed, and he was like really depressed about that. So as he does, I think when he gets sad, he does a covers album. He won double run after Linda died. I, I'm just, mm. that's just my opinion. I feel like that's what he does. What made uh, Kisses on the Bottom? Now I need to unearth the history that found the tragedy that created Kisses on the Bottom. <laughs> Kisses on the Bottom is a tragedy because of its title. It, Shut it the is fuck the tragedy. up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> it is the fucking tragedy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Take that album's name out of your mouth. <laughs> okay, Will Smith. <laughs> Take, can we make a meme? Take Kisses on the Bottom out of your fucking mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You are the only person who will ever defend that album to the extent to which you defend that album. I love the it's fence true. of the hill that you die on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fucking love it. Yeah. Well, now you, I mean, if it tracks, then yeah, there was some sort of tragedy there. And uh, yeah, I think it's up to you, Erica, to really get to the bottom of that. I got it. I got it. <laughs> good, good. Press to play, bombed. Sad about that. Makes this covers album. And he had this idea. Here's where his marketing prowess comes in. He's like, let's make this look 
Like it was smuggled out of Soviet Russia and his marketing, you know, the label and his manager and all those guys were like, ah, this is a bad idea. We hate it. Boo. But as a Christmas gift, his manager had some copies printed up with the cover that we all know and love with the Choba B SSFP on it and uh, give it to Christmas. And then it was like, oh, actually, this is a good idea. Like, maybe we should actually take this copy that you made me and release it in Russia with the Russian on it. And they did. They made up 400,000 copies, which were licensed by Milovica, which is the label that I mentioned earlier. This is the state sanctioned label. And um, it was a big import and export for a while. I remember at the very early days of my fandom when you could only get it for very high prices on eBay, those original like 1988 pressings that were in Russia and smuggled out of Russia, ironically, and sold elsewhere on the bootleg market, etc. But then in 1991, as things do, it came out officially worldwide. I think I have a copy of that pressing. Not cool enough to have a, an original 88 Russian pressing. But, you know, you can also find those songs on like piecemeal singles, etc. that have been sold. Mm-hmm leading up to that so that kind of brings us up to red square which was 2003 and it was significant because you know paul has never played russia he was very excited to play russia but i didn't know this until like this week but he's not the first beetle to play russia that was fucking ringo wow ringo played moscow and saint petersburg with the all-star band in 1998 now he didn't play red square like, that's obviously very significant because it's a government site next to all the government buildings in Moscow. But it's crazy. So funnily enough, Billy Joel <laughs> was the first one to play back at the USSR in Russia in 1987, <laughs> which I thought was just funny. That was just hilarious. Good for you, Billy. Good for yeah. you. <laughs> Billy gets that. He wins that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but again, Paul was the first to play Red Square. So throughout this documentary... Paul talks about how Russia feels like it's coming home to him. And he implies he'd been there before. I don't know if he ever went in some like unofficial capacity or what, but like I could not find anything online that said that Paul had ever set foot in Russia prior to 2003. It was the secret concert in 1968. Oh shit, maybe he's showing his cards. (gasps) Either that or we just proved that he did start the rumor. Oh Mm -hmm. shit. Okay, yep, yep. This is this is this is tracking. This is great. It all circles back around. Mm -hmm. Yes. He slipped up. He slipped up in that documentary. (laughs) Oh, my God. The evidence is right there. Yes. Because he mentioned, well, he mentions perestroika, and he sort of calls that out as a moment, like, in his life that was significant. And I'm like, so as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, like, okay, did he go over, like, you know, in, like, 1985 or 86 when perestroika was sort of happening and Russia was opening up and all that? But I, I literally could not find anything. It's quite possible that he either went on a scouting trip there for this particular concert, or maybe there was a business trip that involved distribution with the Russian label. I mean, there there are some reasons why he might have personally been in Russia before, but it's, it's still a yeah. big deal when somebody went to Russia in the 80s. Yeah, exactly. It, and that would make sense if he went over at the time of the covers album, you know, that which was released in Russia. But yeah, I couldn't find anything officially about it. So if you guys know anything about a Paul trip prior to 2003 in Russia, let me know, because it's a mystery. But luckily enough, we have this uh, beautiful documentary to commemorate this time. One thing that really struck me is, at first it was like, I okay, I'm pretty convinced that Paul only knows one word in Russian. <laughs> <laughs> and it's spasibo, which means thanks. But he walks up to everybody 
<laughs> it's like Sabasibo. So I was like, I spent like an hour Googling. I'm like, this has to be like a slang for hello or something. And then it was like, it dawned on me to just look up common Russian phrases. And it was sure enough, it means thanks. So spoiler alert, we have a very cool bonus episode coming up, piggybacking on this episode where I speak to this lovely lady who traveled with Paul while he was in Moscow and taught him Russian for this trip. And she was along for the shows in Moscow and was with him when he met Gorbachev and these really significant moments. And so I asked her, why was he walking up to people saying thanks? <laughs> Did he just not know what he meant? Her explanation was that maybe it was just sort of saying thanks for welcoming me. Thanks for like coming to the concert. And truly with editing, you never know what they said prior to that, where it could have been like, great show last night, Paul. And he's saying, spasibo. To me, it just looks like he's walking up to random people saying spasibo, but (laughs) it could be editing. Who knows? But later he does say privyet, which means hello in Russian. I've learned a lot of Russian, guys. Like, I'm super smart about Russian. I know like three words now. Nice. Thanks, Paul. He also says rusky a lot, which I'm not sure if that's derogatory or not. So (laughs) there's one point where he walks up to some guy like on a bridge and he's just like, the guy's like, can I take a picture? And Paul's like, yeah, Rusky. And I'm like, I don't know uh, if that's okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. know. I'm not even going to comment on that. I have no idea. Yeah. So something cool. The documentary is so of that era of Paul, which is really special and dear and dear to me because that was the first time I saw him in concert was 2002. So a lot of this is right around then. Something that's really cool is the incidental music in this documentary is all from Working Classical. And I kind of mm. forgot that album existed. That's really nice that they used one of his like lesser known classical things as, as part of the underscoring. At least it gives it some kind of exposure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I love, I mean, the truck haymakers on that is like one of my favorites. I, it's so beautiful. Mm. So that was really cool to hear all that stuff. The first part of the documentary is in Moscow, which was the first concert, which was in May of 2003. And significantly, that's where Paul also meets Mikhail Gorbachev. And you'll hear Aliona, who is the woman that I referenced earlier, who was with Paul during his time in Moscow. She'll talk about it a little bit more on our bonus episode next week. But Gorbachev just seems like a huge fanboy, which I love. And (laughs) he was a very personable, warm kind of figure to the Russians. So that sort of makes sense that he would just be totally chill with Paul. Also, when he's in Moscow in the documentary, you see him and Heather on bikes in Red Square, which can we talk about Heather? We just have to kind of talk about her. She's sort of the elephant in the room in this documentary like i've okay i've always wanted to do a heather episode i don't know if that's okay or not there's no reason why it wouldn't be okay it all depends on what we say i guess yeah i don't yeah i don't know i mean i i have a lot of thoughts about heather i mean and like i have such a love for her driving rain and that whole period that it's like i can't hate her 100 percent because i love that album but holy shit Seeing her in this documentary was just like a time warp. It was insane. So when you see them on bikes, it's like, oh, man, I forgot about the time period of Paul when he was like trying to relive his youth. (laughs) He like just married Heather. When she made him cut and dye his hair, she decided he was too old. So she decided to remake him into something else. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, again, riding bikes in Red Square. They get kind of in trouble with the guards. Next week, you'll hear a. A lot of stories about this kind of thing uh, where 
he was sort of forewarned to not ride his bike around, you know, Red Square, but he did it anyway, and it worked out. Oh, okay. he's a rebel. I he's like a it. rebel. Before we get too much off of Heather, I just need to say this. There's a, a shot, okay? They're in a private plane, and they're sitting across from each other, and Paul is, like, rubbing her foot, and I did not like it. <laughs> mm. I didn't like it. Like, why would they show that? There was a lot of affection in the documentary, a lot of Paul and Heather. Like, a lot. PDA. Like, they, they were kissing a lot in this documentary. This was fairly early, right? Because they were married in, what, 2001? I think she was 2000. Was she already the, pregnant at this point? Yeah, because she, cause she, they had their child in October, I think, of 2003. So she would have been pregnant. So maybe he was just, like, basking in the glow of impending fatherhood maybe, with her. but holy crap. Mm-hmm. Like, so much kissing and so much affection, so much PDA between Paul and Heather. Ugh, well, it's it's not. one of the only times you're going to see it because, again, in a comparison to the 9-11 documentary, which was edited 10 <laughs> years after the fact, Heather disappeared because yes. they had 10 years of hindsight to get rid of her. I totally love that you just compared like seeing Heather in this to a 9-11 documentary. I just in some way like just <laughs> those things just just posed together. That was amazing. <laughs> Um, I, you know what, rewatching this documentary really wants me to go back and rewatch back in the U.S. Like the, I think that came out in what, like 2003, about the driving rain tour. Because in my memory, mm. she's in there a lot. And there's a lot of drams that I can remember between her and Paul in that documentary. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, I need to rewatch. So exciting. Uh, but speaking of driving rain, I got really excited because you can see on Abe's drumhead is still the driving rain tour stuff. And also in the concerts, like it was such a visceral memory for me because it was the same like graphics and stuff that he used on that tour. Did you see him on that tour? Like the 2002, 2003? I didn't, but I saw him on the one after the chaos tour. So 2005, 2006. And a lot of what he had done then was still kind of carrying over his style, like the jeans and the landmine stuff and the haircut. A lot of the graphics were all kind of in there. That all meshes that those like five or so years of Paul's life. Totally, totally. Yeah, I just remembered, you know, watching the Red Square doc, how when he would perform, I saw her standing there and he would do the black and white kind of like staticky TV uh, Mm -hmm. imagery all around him. Like, I remember loving that on that tour. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And it was it was a nice recall to have that. So I was like, oh, that's such a nice memory. So that was like the 40 year anniversary of the Beatles and Sullivan, if we're talking about 2003, 2004. That's true. Wow. And I think he kept those graphics for the 2005 tour. I remember those. That sounds about right. So yeah, anyway, proceeding onward, the second Mm -hmm. part, sort of the middle part, I guess, of this documentary is in St. Petersburg. And it really just centers around Paul giving a masterclass at the Lincoln School, which is just like a music school. He sort of takes this like young group of like four guys like under his wing. So one's like a classical guitar player with a piano player. He doesn't really give them much constructive criticism or advice that i <laughs> i saw he just sort of hangs out and he's like yeah that's good wasn't the second part filmed at a totally different trip yes like, wasn't so, it like done a year later or something st petersburg was a year later so they went back in i believe june of 2004 okay so after heather had had the baby and yes yes but they're they're still fucking kissing <laughs> in st petersburg mm-hmm. it's like goddamn because so Paul goes to uh, the St. Petersburg Conservatory and he gets this honorary doctorate and he's like super excited because he's quote unquote walking the steps that Tchaikovsky walked. He gives a speech on Russian from like these little note cards and then 
like again in that sort of classical Paul era that we're still kind of coming out of at this point. You see a bunch of orphans singing human theme from Standing Stone. I forgot Standing Stone even existed until I saw that. I'm like, oh yeah, there was that. More uh, very deep cuts being represented in this thing. <laughs> no, very much so. But then, so the dock circles back to the Kremlin, which is in Moscow. So I guess the St. Petersburg part was just a little interlude, just a little treat, you know, a snack <laughs> in the middle of this documentary. Oh, um, because then it's like Putin time, USA, or USSR, oh. should I say. Uh, I don't even know how to start this. Like, it's just so, it's so outrageous to me. So we see Paul and Heather meeting with Putin. And the first thing that happens is crazy. So they sit down to talk in this like room with like this nice like spread of like snacks out in front of them, which would look great. And Paul sits down in the chair sort of next to Putin. And what he does is he makes like an excuse to Heather where it's like, oh, he asked me to sit over here. Basically, is that okay? Sorry, you're sitting so far away from Putin. And I'm like, oh, you don't need to fucking say that to Heather. You're Paul McCartney. You're the one that was invited here. And this is the president of Russia. So yeah, no, she can sit on the couch. It's like across from you guys. But I thought that like spoke volumes, you know, about their, their dynamic between them. Mm-hmm. Oh, for and, sure. Yeah. It's very uncomfortable. It was super uncomfortable. I mean, the whole thing was tense because it's Putin and he looks like a, yeah. you know, a violent mole. But it's, it's the whole thing just with her there was just crazy uncomfortable wearing the most violent red color suit right i mean paul's got that like pinky shirt on and you can see inside his jacket it's like a like a red sort of lining but she's just like i'm in russia i'm gonna wear red i'm gonna scream it you know (laughs) it was a lot it was a lot like when she was sitting there i just kept imagining her like sharpening her fangs or something you know so it's just so over the top yeah, that was definitely a big statement to make. So we see them have like a conversation. Paul does his voiceover. He's like, you know, deep down, uh, Putin's just an ordinary guy like we all are. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, he seems very genuine. And he's got working class values. And then quote unquote, um, no wonder the people like him. Mm, no, no, Paul. <laughs> no, no, no. Get, somebody, get the squirt bottle. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and then Paul's like, oh, you know, did you listen to the Beatles growing up? Putin says, yeah, I was, I was like very, you know, invested in this answer. And he says, yes. And then quote unquote, it was like a gulp of freedom. Your music was like an open window to the world. It's like, who the fuck is this guy? Shut the fuck up, Putin, about freedom. Yeah. Like, and I open windows to the world. It. Fuck you. Fuck you. Like, really? Come on. Like, it was, I, I'm, I'm still speechless when I think about it. Cause it's like, what the fuck? Are you for real? Are you for real right now? It's just so crazy with the lens of 20 years hindsight to think about how this was probably like a goodwill trip. Like, look at how Russia is is progressing and changing and we can have this this thing and look at the people being able to enjoy this this concert in Red Square and look at he's just a normal guy and he's such a popular president. Yes. Yeah. What? So I remember very distinctly watching this documentary. I think it aired on A&E here in the States. And I didn't know shit about politics because that was back when you didn't have to care about politics if you were like mm-hmm. young and dumb. And yep. I, you know, I, how old was I when this came out? Maybe like 15, 16. And I didn't know who fucking Vladimir Putin was. So I was like, oh, he seems cool. <laughs> like, he seems chill. Paul likes hey, him. And he the likes people Paul seem to like him. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like he, you know, and also, you know, that was the time when we had George Bush here. So anything looked good compared to that. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I was like, oh, Putin, he seems like a real Democrat. Like, he's cool. Like, you know, the people when he, spoiler alert, shows up to Paul's show later in this documentary, like they go apeshit for him. So I remember thinking very positively of Putin for years because of this. And to be fair, he wasn't quite so monstrous publicly until the last like what like five or ten years i think this is a real argument for the importance of term limits <laughs> dude totally totally <laughs> we often forget how long putin has been in office since the heather mills days guys it's been a long time so paul mentions putin he's like well you know beatles music was banned and putin says it was considered quote-unquote propaganda alien ideology which you'll see quoted all the time like the alien ideology is quote a lot not only about the beatles but about rock and roll in russia and then my favorite part of the whole thing <laughs> paul mentions fucking landmines because of course he does <laughs> oh my god because you know he was gonna get yelled at if he didn't fucking mention landmines mm-hmm. and then heather gets her like two cents in with putin and uh putin's like yeah i know your wife is really actively involved in campaigning against landmines and that also got me thinking. It's like, what the hell happened to the No More Landmines? If you're curious, it shut down in 2015. I had no idea. Was it a thing that was was run by Paul and Heather or by Heather? And then it kind of shut down as Heather abandoned interest? Or was it a, an external organization? So this is totally random. But I met somebody when I was in college who also had his leg. Well, also, Heather did not have her leg blown off by a landmine. This guy actually did. <laughs> um, and uh, so I met him and he had done some work with No More Landmines and he met Paul and Heather. And he yeah. actually had nothing but good things to say about both of them. So I asked him about the charity and he's like, oh, yeah, it's been around for a while, but it's obviously gotten a big boost because now they're so super involved. So I can only imagine that it had already been in existence, but the notoriety and the press and all that and probably the donations and that kind of thing it got from being associated with like Paul and Heather probably was astronomical. So when that all went away, it probably was a struggle to maybe keep it going. And I don't know that even Heather does much with landmines these days. I know she's very involved in like her vegan, her V bites or whatever the fuck she's doing. She still does a lot of work and like counseling for amputees and and work with like amputees in sports and things like that. So I'm not sure if Mm -hmm. she's pivoted away totally from the landmines issue, but she's still doing like amputee work. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, and who knows, maybe her not doing much with landmines anymore is because you know, no more landmines shut down. It doesn't have to be related, but yeah, yeah. I was just so curious. And <laughs> quite honestly, when I was going to these Paul shows, I was like, man, it's been 20 years. Since I saw Paul the first time. That was like his no more landmines tour. I really want one of those stupid shirts. <laughs> and I could not find one. <laughs> They're on eBay now for a lot of money. I wish I would have bought one back in like 2002. See, I mean, that's what you got to do when you see that shirt you want. You see that thing you want. You got to get it because you never exactly. know. And 20 years later, you wish you had. You wish you had a No More Landmines t-shirt. Yep. Oh, damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was telling you the other day, I, I wish I had a I Saw Paul McCartney in Brooklyn shirt from one night in 2018. No, that but never that got. shirt is amazing. That shirt is iconic. And, and that was truly one night only for that shirt. No More Landmines is iconic in its own way, though, for this, this community. He wore a fucking Bond Dutch design No More Landmines, which yep. if nothing, if there's nothing else that says 2003 more than that. Nope. <laughs> 
amazing. <laughs> For sure. So anyway, so Heather's like, do you think Russia will ever join the landmine ban? Which I'm <laughs> that being a big topic around them. And Putin says, anything that saves people's lives deserves our utmost attention. <laughs> L-O-L. God damn. Oh, he's a riot, that Putin. He's funny. He sucks. I hate this guy. <laughs> oh, my god. You know, gosh. I kept thinking, though, when he had said to her, I, I know, or to Paul or somebody, I know all about Heather's involvement with the landmines issue. I just imagined this whole thing, like, Paul telling his people, like, you need to make sure that he knows this is Heather's thing because she's going to ream me if I don't make this happen. Yes. And then so oh my he got God, like, all these totally. people so nervous that, like, imparted this sense of urgency to, like, Putin's fucking advisors to say, make sure you know the wife, Heather, her name, <laughs> what she does. This is very important. It's uh, yeah, I, his his press person for this uh, tour, uh, well, the whole tour, but like these shows and this meeting, I'm as as well. I'm sure it was Jeff Baker who was his press agent for a very very yeah. very long time, and I can only imagine Jeff Baker being like, guys, like this is for reals, okay? Like Paul needs you to know this, and he's got to ask <laughs> about the fucking landmines because you don't you don't film a conversation with Putin without Putin knowing what's going to be said in advance. Exactly. It's like, I know about your wife's involvement in the landmines. Oh my God. Like that's, that's so funny. <laughs> so good. It's God. like, it, he's just, it, I, I hope he secretly winked at Paul where it's like, I got your message, bud. I got yeah, you. I got you. <laughs> You're not going to get pissed up tonight. Don't worry. <laughs> good Lord. And this is why we're on the fence about doing an episode about Heather. Yeah. It, it, could, it could go downhill. I feel like I'm being very restrained right now, which I mean, I'm not sure if I sound that way, but it could be very bad. Yeah. <laughs> and like later, just to wrap up the Heather talk, but later when Putin says goodbye to Paul and Heather, Heather goes, say hello to your wife and kids. <laughs> like, shut up. Like we get it. You're the uh, wife and you're doing the fucking diplomatic thing. Like, just go get, get out of here. Like you both can go away. Just go away and leave Paul alone. Jesus Christ. I mean, I feel like they'd have a lot in common, but that's the last I'm going to say about Heather. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's good. That's a good uh, conclusion to the Heather segment. Anyway, so Paul asked Putin if he was going to come to the concert in Red Square. Putin's like, nah. So Paul privately played him Let It Be. The spoiler alert, which you've already revealed, is that Putin shows up at the concert. But before we leave the Kremlin, I just want to make note that Paul fucking asked somebody about Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pause and I was crying, <laughs> laughing when he's like, oh, oh, Rasputin. I'm like, shut up. Are you serious, Paul? I know one thing about Russia and that's that there's yes. a guy with like a foot long dick and I want to know if it's really in a jar in a museum in St. Petersburg and it's the only thing I care about. <laughs> oh my God. I actually forgot that. I forgot about that, about Rasputin. That's what you just said. Paul oh my God. didn't forget. Paul remembered. Oh, take me, take me to the dick. It's in a jar, and I know it. Oh, it's just like Eleanor Rigby's face. I'm gonna write a new song. Oh my god, can he? Can he still? <laughs> oh god, that's so funny. I feel like through this documentary, Paul, whenever he opens his mouth, I'm just like shh, because he just. He just sounds not so smart <laughs> this whole documentary. And I don't know. I would imagine he was very nervous going into it. I imagine he was like, I know from talking to Aliona, who was accompanying him, like he really did want to like 
make an effort to show he tried to learn Russian. He wanted to be like the right, he wanted to you know communicate with the Russian people. But like, I just feel like he says some of the dumbest crap <laughs> in this documentary. And I love him for it. I really do. But like walking around the Kremlin and just randomly asking somebody about Rasputin is the cream of the crop <laughs> as far as this documentary goes. I feel like that's when Paul's true essence came out. Like, I love I'm it. really like... Yeah, I'm all for diplomacy, and this is a great Goodwill visit, but I really want to know. <laughs> I know he's like, okay, I did, I did, I did a good job, right? Now I get to ask my question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I would want to know this. I'm like, I want to know this stupid trivia crap too about Russia. It's like, can you take me mm-hmm. to where, like, you know, Anastasia was shot in the head? Like, I just want to know the the morbid, macabre, like crazy <laughs> right. crap. Hmm. That was probably my favorite moment in the whole in the whole doc. <laughs> well that says Uh, a lot yes exactly (laughs) exactly it does (laughs) so anyway the actual concert in moscow which we'll talk to Ariona a little bit about next week um she was there and she got to witness like putin coming in in the middle of the show which i actually love because he comes in during calico skies and who would have known if calico skies would have actually made it the dock if putin hadn't come in during the the song it actually happened that way. It wasn't like interspersed in the dock. So you see the crowd sort of parting and Putin and his entourage come through. And allegedly Jeff Baker uh, has said that he was accompanied by a general who was handcuffed to a briefcase that contained nuclear codes. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> Which sounds pretty Russian. That's so fucking Russian, right? Like, come on, you can't <laughs> write this shit. Like, <laughs> is that real? Baker also said that Putin had sort of timed his arrival. Like they did not know he was coming. That's, that's totally true. Like he had said he wasn't going to come and they were under that thought the whole night, but he thought that Putin arrived intentionally after Paul had played back in the USSR because obviously the USSR was a Soviet Union. Soviet Union uh, came down in the early nineties. So he didn't want to be seen as like celebrating the Soviet Union, but fucking Paul <laughs> sees Putin come in during Calico skies. And then what does he do? As he plays back in the USSR again. Good job, Paul. I love Paul. it. Love it. I, love it. I mean, he probably was like, oh, it's so much fun. I'm, I'm celebrating Russia and Putin's here now. And then Putin's like heavily trolled by Paul. That was the day <laughs> that Putin turned from a nice president to the man oh, we have no. today. That's what happened. Oh, Paul, that's, you that's, did that. That was the moment. <laughs> you shouldn't have played that song, Paul. She just played Calico Skies the second time. Ugh, yes, if you're going to play a song twice, Calico Skies is a good choice, for sure. Agreed. Something else about the show, which I remember hearing about when he played it, but I totally forgot, was that they controlled the weather <laughs> with, like, chemicals. I totally forgot about this. But they sent up, like, little rockets or something that had Wait, this that's chemical. real? I thought that was yes. just, like, Russian sci-fi bullshit. Yeah, that's fucking real. Because, Holy uh, shit. Because it was confirmed by Jeff Baker who apparently gave the call because it looked like rain all day and they were like i hope it doesn't rain whatever and the russians were like hey we have this thing that we could do if you want to and Jesus. jeff baker's like really and they're like yeah and they're like just let us know and he's like okay just do it and he said he doesn't he's not sure whether or not they actually did it but he's like pretty sure that actually happened God. and he also said there were snipers on top of buildings so there's that as well Okay, well, you know what? If it's to protect Paul, I'm okay with protecting yeah. Paul. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm not sure, re the rain, if the rain or the chemicals were worse, but, you know. Mm. But yeah, so 
the people in the show, like, they fucking love Putin. He walks in, he's like a rock star. And all the Russians pretty much interviewed in the documentary say they're quote unquote proud of Putin for saying the Beatles music was a breath of fresh air. And it's just, it's, it's wild, you know, knowing that what we know now, obviously how revered Putin was. But again, like, was that propaganda? Because it totally influenced how I felt about Putin for the longest. Anything that you could classify as like a, you know, a goodwill trip is, is propaganda in its own right. And, you know, when you're talking about Putin, it's definitely yeah. propaganda because everything that they do is engineered to give a certain impression. And I'm sure this was a wonderful boon for Putin. I mean, totally. not, not only having this thing out there, but him coming to the concert in the middle of the show when he said he wasn't, that makes him look like such a good guy. It totally says so much about his direction for the country in that, you know, the Beatles were banned. The Beatles were something that everybody wanted in the eight, in the 60s and in the 80s. And people got in a lot of trouble for trying to acquire this. And, you know, look at him just like walking into this Paul McCartney concert, loving yeah. it, wanting it, welcoming it. That could have gotten him an actually, you know, fairly elected term, another term. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And also for all of us who are sort of watching this from the outside too, you're going, if the president of Russia is a cool guy, Russia's cool now, you know, and he's a Paul fan, just like the rest of us, you know, it's like Russia's kind of joining the rest of the world culturally. I mean, all the way around, this was probably one of the best PR moves of Putin's career, I think. Yeah. And I think showing Gorbachev was another really smart move in that way, because they connected the, you know, communism with the perestroika movement with today's Russia, or at least in 2003 or whenever. And they showed Gorbachev as this like sweet, kind old man who's getting along with Paul McCartney. There's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. I mean, there, you know, there's obviously like layers and layers and layers below this documentary that are just, yeah, there's so much. We're just scratching the surface. And of course, throughout the documentary, there's a lot of talk about like unity and how we're, oh, bless you. That was Epi just sneezed into the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) He just was like, oh, you're bashing Heather. Did I miss that? Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, Epps. You missed that. But yeah, of course, throughout the documentary, there's a lot of talk about unity and we're all one and the Beatles connect us all and, you know, talk about propaganda. I don't know, this could be a hot take, but there's always been a lot of books written and articles written and a lot of things said about how like the Beatles took down communism, which I don't know, is a little bit of a stretch for me. I think there was Mm. a lot in play at play there. So it's sort of like giving Paul a lot of credit for a lot of things. And (laughs) I don't deny him the fact that like his music, the Beatles music gave people hope in a time when it was hopeless. I think that's totally true. We've all been there with music. Music has that property. But it's like the glorifying of it is a little much sometimes. It's certainly going over the top to make a point in this specific documentary. I think that if you're really looking at the big picture, you know, the, the Beatles were a symbol of a certain type of freedom that people really wanted. And I think people were going to great lengths to get the music because it was, you know, a proxy for the freedom in some ways. But it wasn't just the Beatles. I mean, in the 80s, like American blue jeans were a big fucking deal in Russia, too, was another thing that was being considered contraband and being smuggled into the country. So there were a number of things that cultural touch points 
in Western society that, you know, really symbolize the idea of freedom to Russia. But certainly the Beatles were one of them. And, and Paul used to, I don't think it's his story right now, but when he does Love Me Do, sometimes he talks about yes. how when he went to Russia that people would say, you know, that he met their dignitaries would say, I learned English from listening to Love Me Do, from listening to your records. Yes. Well, I think you hear the defense minister, he tells a story of like the Love Me Do. And when he says, Love Me Do, it just reminded me of when Paul tells that story because he loves, yes. loves <laughs> you. He, he tells that story yeah. where he's like, Love Me Do. And I'm like, ugh. Yeah. He, he's shockingly, he doesn't tell that story or play back in the USSR on the tour at the moment. That's true. Yeah. Bless you. Epi is just sneezing. <laughs> Look, he just wants to make himself known. I'm happy. Rosie had her yes. turn earlier. Now Epi is yes. <laughs> taking the mic. You are. Yes, exactly. I thought he told that story before Love Me Do. He told it before back in the USSR. No, no, no. He tells it before Love Me Do. Oh, wait, does he? I don't remember if he swaps off between that and like singing the Love Me Do part. Um, those oh. are his two Love Me Do's. I don't know. Yeah. I can't remember. It very well could have been before back in the USSR. I just couldn't remember where he told I, I think it. definitely closer to the time when he actually went to Moscow. He loved to tell mm. that story. He, I think that was more in people's minds. So he was sort of like, a couple of years ago, we went to Moscow. And everybody goes, woo, you know, yeah. like that whole mm-hmm. thing. And then tells the let me do story. But I, yeah, I don't remember. It may have been before back in the USSR. But yeah, he definitely would love to talk about his Russian trip a lot. Mm. I remember yeah. shows post this. I mean, it was obviously super duper special to him. And I could not find fault with that. It's an amazing trip. It's an amazing accomplishment for somebody who certainly grew up knowing about Russia as a communist entity with the Cold War post World War Two, with all that means and to have that sort of honor to like play this big show in Red Square. There's a really touching moment at the very end of the documentary where Paul talks about his dad and how if he had told his dad, you know, when he was a teenager, dad, guess what? I'm going to be playing for the Russian president in Red Square and I'm going to meet, I'm going to go to the Kremlin and all this stuff. Like his dad would have thought he was crazy, but he did it. And it was just so sweet that all mm-hmm. these years later, it's like, he's still thinking like, you know, I mean, my dad proud. He would be proud of me. Yeah. I always love it when he talks about Jim. Part of the yeah. reason I love the album kisses on the bottom so much. Oh yeah. There is the Jim tie in, but <laughs> Even Jim McCartney can't do it. Ah, boo. <laughs> no, but I was thinking too, like people who are older than we are, who actually lived through the Cold War, this is even a much bigger deal. Like I don't oh, remember yeah. the Cold War, but there are people in other generations who had to do like desk drills at school. There was McCarthyism and there right. was a lot of crazy crazy stuff that happened because of this. There was the space race. I mean, there was a lot of Russian stuff that I don't register. Like, I don't think about that when I think about Russia because I didn't experience it. But somebody who's Paul's age experienced that. Yeah. Being there, being an ambassador for Western culture and being accepted is probably a huge deal. Absolutely. And the fact that the Beatles could not tour there. Like, that was just a a non-starter. And knowing the Red Scare, and you talk about McCarthyism, but like, you know, the very real, or imagined, depending on what you believe, but like, the government's being afraid of the spread of communism, and them going to places, we'll talk about later, you know, in a few weeks about when they went to the Philippines, you know, the Beatles, and how that was in the very, very beginning stages of what would be martial law. Yeah, absolutely. It's a super loaded, and it had to be terrifying and exciting and surreal for him 
Paul McCartney, who still thinks about making his dad proud, you know, to sit mm-hmm. down in the Kremlin with the Russian president. Like, that, yeah. I don't know. That makes me a little proud of for him that he did that, even though it was Putin. Yeah. All of the progress that happened with Russia, it still happened, even though Putin is a monster and is doing some horrific things right now. Yes. Yeah, there was that that sense of progress in the releasing of the Cold War. So it's not yeah. all, for, all for naught. Exactly. So uh, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it's really important to understand the context of this documentary, especially because of what we're living through right now with Russia and Ukraine. But yeah, of the moment, it's a great little snapshot of Paul's life <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And, you know, where the world was and the post 9-11 world where unity was really the factor of it all kind of what everybody was working to achieve. So I was curious, yeah. I was like, you know, what is Paul really, you know, I know, as we so he, he trots out these stories about Russia and love me do and that kind of thing. But I wasn't sure, you know, what his deal was with Russia these days. Until last week, I did learn firsthand what, how he feels about it. The earliest thing I found about Paul and Russia post this concert was that he was one of the artists speaking out against the imprisonment of the Russian punk rock band Pussy Riot. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, I forgot about the Yeah, the female punk rock and performance art band. And they were arrested for an unauthorized performance on the altar of Moscow's Christ the Savior Cathedral, where they asked for divine intervention to rid Russia of Vladimir Putin, who was then running for his third presidential term. Love and, it. Uh, Yeah, Paul was one of the first folks to speak out. Madonna did, Sting did, a number of other artists just demanding that this is a freedom of speech issue and that Pussy Riot be released from jail. Nice. I love that about Paul. I like that he doesn't double down on shit. Like, I feel like now, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how he was talking to Bill Clinton about Harvey Weinstein. I feel like Paul would be the first one to be like, yep, that was problematic. Like, fuck both of them mm-hmm. <laughs> you know obviously with this you see paul be like yeah no he was a monster actually and yep. the next year you know he pens this open letter to putin which starts dear vladimir which made me laugh about releasing 28 greenpeace activists and two journalists that were arrested at a protest at an oil drilling site i remember he posted on facebook and he was like yep still haven't heard back <laughs> But, you know, he was very vigilant about calling out Putin for his egregious activities. And then I love this. I didn't know this going into the shows. At the end of the show, like he and the band come out carrying flags. They carry usually the American flag, the British flag, the state flag where they're playing. And the last few years, they've been carrying the rainbow flag. And this time, Paul himself is carrying the Ukrainian flag, which was amazing. I was very excited about that. I love that so much. It was so great and so great to see his support. I can imagine over the years as he saw Donald Trump's relationship with Putin, that any sense of goodwill that may have been engendered during this trip might have fallen away. Yes, that whole thing is a whole other uh, (laughs) can of worms. But yeah, (laughs) I, I think it was really powerful and really cool, you know, as we're taking a look back at Paul's time in Russia to realize that it's sort of come full circle in a different way where he's like, nah, you know what, I'm going to publicly side with Ukraine on this. And, you know, he's Paul, he's a musician, but he's also like one of the most important pop culture figures, I think, in history. So it's a really powerful statement. And I hope fucking Putin takes notice because fuck you, Putin. I hope so, too. All right. 
We end this episode as we always end with our latest Beatles obsession of the moment. Allison, what's yours? I'm going to make this real short and sweet for you all. My weird Beatles obsession, I say weird because it's strange to me, is having done this episode, seeing Paul in concert and reflecting on my 20 years of seeing Paul live. I just had this like weird thirst for Paul from 2002 to 2007, like right up to memory almost full. And don't get me wrong. I love that era of Paul too. But ah, there's just something about that, like four or five years in there that is just really, it's really got me right now. <laughs> like, Aww. I know this past week I went back. This is so embarrassing. I went back and reread this terrible, terrible fanfic that I wrote during that time. And if anybody knows me and read that back when I was posting it on Live Journal, yes, you heard that correctly. No, you didn't. <laughs> and you never read it. But I went back and read it. It's awful. It's terrible. But it was written about Paul during this period. So it was like old Paul thick. <laughs> How smutty was it? Not very. <laughs> Did it involve Rasputin? It, no Rasputin. Although, okay. you know, it might be go worth it while to go back and edit some Rasputin in there just for uh, <laughs> historical accuracy. Thing. Exactly. Yes. But yeah, I uh, went back and reread that because I was just sort of like, oh, I'm curious. And it's uh, it's a very strange fanfic. But yeah, I don't know. I've just been very in the pocket with that this week. I've been, you know, really going back and re-listening to like Driving Rain and some of the live album, you know, the Back in the U.S. album. I think it's a weird nostalgia trip for me, but I'm not going to fight it because Paul at that time was, he could still get it. He could really still get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Some really good music came out at that time, too. I agree. I agree. Although we know that, you know, I'll always apologize for driving rain. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm not counting the song Heather in, in that statement that I made, but I, I know you do. I listened to Heather like yesterday, unironically, and I was like, I mean, okay, yes, it's a, it's a piano scale that she was stupid enough to think was an actual song. And yes, it's actually how it was written. But I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cute little it's a cute little tune you know if he didn't creepily whisper heather like he was waiting in the bushes to murder her maybe it would be all right <laughs> so yeah. yeah if he could have like let that out that would have been preferable that's true but then it just would have been warm-up scales right and then it would have been like a cute little coda because he does that a lot with his albums right he, he tacks mm-hmm. on the coda at the end it would have just yeah, been the same like- thing you know, the secret track uh, at the end of Off the Ground, you know, a little cosmically conscious, but... Totally. Yeah, sadly, he did the creepy thing and uh, mm-hmm. ruined it. But anyway, I still uh, I still love that. And, you know, watching this documentary, I was also reminded about his little watch that he had, that he took the cover photo oh, for driving yeah. on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I've ever told the story on the podcast, but I asked for that for Christmas that year and I got it. I got that watch. You still have it? I do. It's somewhere. <laughs> and it was like, obviously, like the only thing I got because it was like 200 bucks or something, which was a lot back then, guys. But it was so cool. I loved that thing. I took photos with it. I I was obsessed with that watch. So seeing him with that watch on just took me back to that, too. And like those couple of years where I wore that thing nonstop. If you ever unearthed the watch or pictures that you took with the watch... We gotta oh, see I'm sure they're somewhere. I'm sure they are. I remember I take pictures of like my friends at school and I loved it. But yeah, so uh, I'm just I'm working through my thirst. That's my uh, quite literal obsession because there have been moments where I'm like, I cannot stop thinking about Paul in like 2003. Oh my God, <laughs> I <fucking> love it. <laughs> it's amazing. Crazy. 
What about you, dude? Amazingly, I decided to break the mold and not talk about something involving Paul, which is surprising that's, even to that's me. That's crazy. As a lot of people know, at least in the United States right now, legalizing marijuana is a big deal, especially where I am in New York and New Jersey. You're starting to pass lots of laws and there's going to be some interesting partnerships happening. And one that I found out about today was that the estate of George Harrison is partnering with a cannabis maker called Dad Grass on a line of Dad Grass. And they are creating a line of weed products under the brand name, All Things Must Grass. No. Yeah. So the company (laughs) itself, they make things like pre-rolled joints, uh, CBD products, and other marijuana-related paraphernalia. They are very excited about the fact that not only are they going to be able to feature the photo shoot from the album and play on that, but they can also... Use the gnomes. They're very excited to be able to use the images of the gnomes, the garden gnomes from Friar Park that are on the cover of All Things Must Pass as part of the design for All Things Must Grass. So this is just delightful. I cannot wait to see when this stuff actually comes out. And I feel like this is what George would have always wanted. So good on the estate hilarious also you know grass it's also about gardening so george is very i'm sure george is very happy wherever he is george and his gnomes yes those gnomes man they hit it big that they're like celebrities for all time and now people will look at those gnomes when they're smoking all things miss grass and ponder the big questions of the world yes well that is something to look forward to i suppose if you're into that sort of thing and uh wow i am Speechless. I mean, you know, I do a lot of work with the Grateful Dead in my day to day life, and they'd have a weed partnership, I believe, which makes total sense. And it's nice to know that George is also getting one. Just as he would have wished. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. Well, on that note, go get your pre order in. I'm sure all things must grass. And uh, thanks for listening to Because of the Beatles. As always, follow the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are listening right now. And please, please give us a rating and review so other Beatle Maniacs can find us. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. And remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.